to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing, sir? Great. I'm excited to talk about Christmas with you. It's uh, a little bit before Christmas here, and we're going to going to help people prepare for the uh, Christmas time. Yeah, I guess, you know, the holiday season. And um, I was a little bit, I mean... I'll just be honest, I was dreading this episode a little bit just because we've already done like two of these Christmas episodes and I was fearing that I didn't have all that new, anything all that new to contribute. Um, I I feel like if I wanted to say anything about Christmas or if I was going to teach a Sunday school lesson on Christmas, I would have more or less shared all of it in these uh, in our last two Christmas episodes. But uh, I hope it's going to be okay. Uh, with folks that I just basically talk about what's been on my mind with regard to the Christmas mm-hmm. season, and uh, we can just go from there. Keep it a keep it a shorter episode, and try not to repeat myself too much. If that is okay with you, yeah, sounds great. Excellent, excellent. Okay, before we go ahead and go into that, just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collection of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay, so Christmas lesson. That is what we are doing this week. Um, We can... I mean, I don't know how we want to go about this exactly. I don't even know exactly what you are going to be. I mean, are you going to be talking about Luke 2 at all? Do we want to go from the story of the nativity or we just want to jump right into, you know, insights or yeah. what we've been thinking about with Yeah, Christmas? I don't think I want to go through the texts. All right, um, cool. I might, I might go through something in, in Luke 1, but we'll see what happens. I just want right, to just cool. pause and say there's something funny with Mormons and holidays, especially if you look at other religious traditions who make a big deal out about holidays. I'm thinking about our Jewish siblings here who have all these holidays, like, and each of them has a per- particular rituals and foods and customs and and laws about how to celebrate the, the holidays. And it's amazing. And we don't have holidays. I think we're, um, and there's a, there's a brilliant way of doing that. You can be like the Quakers or the Puritans who have simplicity and this sort of understated elegance to their, they just don't have holidays. And, you know, the the Jehovah's Witnesses don't have holidays either. Right. But we're kind of doing it half, half, halfway, right? It's like, mm-hmm. I think, uh, and that's kind of weird that we don't, we don't do more. We don't have a sense of Advent. We don't have a sense of Lent. We don't have a sense of a church calendar. We don't have a lectionary, which is why I'm going glad uh, some of us are going through Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney's uh, women's lectionary for the whole church so we can actually get a sense of the liturgical cycle of the year. And I'm, I'm guessing you're noticing this at Union because you've got a wide variety of denominations there, many of whom oh, actually have, like, Christmas actually means something to the, to, the, uh, to the pyramids you have, the vestments you have, the readings you have, the... Uh, yeah. And so a lot of holidays get observed. In fact, my the first day of class was a Jewish holiday. And I've heard that certain this uh no, I don't want to even get in there. Just never mind. But anyway, my point is right. I think we could do holidays a little bit better. Like we don't even have uh 
a service on on Christmas. Like Christmas is the second holiest day of the year, and we what do we do? We sit at home. We open gifts from Santa. Like well, many I ain't other going to ch- no midnight mass. Shoot, <laughs> what you propose a midnight mass? Well, a lot of a lot of other traditions have a service Christmas Eve in the evening. It uh-huh. sometimes it could be midnight. Sometimes it could be early evening. So they have something on uh-huh. Christmas Eve, and then they have a full service Christmas morning because mm. it's it's a uh, at least in the United States it's a, a it's essentially a, a Sunday in terms of holidays. Right, everyone has right. Christmas off. Almost. Right, everybody has it off. Um, or anyone who would have Sundays off would have Christmas off, is, is another mm-hmm. way of putting it. So my point is, like, we're just, like, not caring about it, it seems, culturally. Like, and I think there's cultural things we do around Christmas, but it it's not liturgically celebrated. It's not observed. Right. It's not marked in any way. Like the 12 days of Christmas aren't marked in any way. And a lot of people might even think that they're the 12 days leading up to Christmas. Epiphany's not marked. Mm-hmm. Ash Wednesday's not marked. Um uh we have basically Easter and Christmas and the thing that I've learned being in other traditions that observe Advent and Lent is that these traditions are much more meaningful if you have a time of preparation before them. Because then you actually are um, building to them, you're anticipating them, and you are, otherwise it's just kind of routine. It, it just shows up and then it's there and it's like you have not actually deliberately and intentionally prepared yourself for that. And when it comes, you're, you're so happy. So anyway. Hmm. I, just I was thinking to- the closest thing we have is, uh, I mean, the closest thing I think we have is like the light the world thing we do on social media oh yeah and, that. Uh, you know maybe christmas hymns during church so in that way there's like these little things that we do outside of church that mm. you know prepare us for christmas and you know i think they're beautiful in their own way but it's not quite um like you said part of our liturgy and i think that would be you know a beautiful thing to incorporate i admit i've never thought about some kind of liturgical mm. preparation mm-hmm. for christmas celebration of lent celebration of ash wednesday celebration of all these other mm-hmm. uh, events that otherwise prepare us or help us come out of these these holidays and uh, yeah I, I never even thought about it that way as mm-hmm. these mm-hmm. holidays like advent as preparation for christmas and making them yeah. more meaningful and pentecost is real big you have 7 weeks of easter which is the 49 49- Days plus one will give you uh-huh. 50 days, and then you've got Pentecost, and that's a, a big deal. And like, we don't even seem to, um, yeah, we don't. I now that I think about it, if we did have a liturgical year, what we're actually having, our liturgical year is based around the general conference cycle because that's like okay. the one thing that people prepare for, and that's the one right, thing right. that people post pair whatever it is when you like you know process something what is it yeah (laughs) Uh uh-huh basically so people are spending weeks or months up until general conference and then general conference comes and then they spend the next six months going over what they did and what they learned and all these talks from the previous conference and so that that is our liturgical year rhythm is based around the general conference cycle Mm. and yeah, I don't know if I want to say any more about that, but that is something I've noticed. All right. Let's, let's get into something that I've noticed from uh, Luke chapter 1 about right. the conception of, of Jesus. And this is, and here's the King James Version. It says, 
And the angel answered and said unto her, this is Luke 1.35, and this is at the Annunciation where the angel Gabriel is saying, surprise, you're going to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And something that Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney points out, who is a womanist, an amazing womanist Hebrew Bible scholar, she has pointed out that in in Semitic languages such as uh, Hebrew and Aramaic, when the when the angel Gabriel spoke to Mary, the angel probably spoke in Aramaic or perhaps Hebrew, but um, Aramaic. And in Aramaic and in Hebrew, you've got the Holy Ghost is gendered grammatically as feminine. Mm-hmm. And so you end up um, having Ruach HaKodesh in Hebrew and Rucha de Kudeshah in Aramaic. And what's interesting about Hebrew compared to Greek, because normally I read Luke in Greek, is that in Greek the verbs are not gendered. Like you cannot tell the subject or uh, of a verb uh, in terms of its gender just based on the form of the verb. But in Hebrew and Aramaic and Syriac, which is a dialect of Aramaic, you've got the verbs actually agree in gender with the gender of the subject of the verb. So in this case, when the Holy Spirit comes upon her, it's actually the Holy Spirit, she come, she will come upon you, right? And I think that's a very interesting thing that we're, we're allowed to play with the gender in this way, and it rings differently when you read it in the... Uh, in a language that Mary would have heard it in, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that changes sort of the nature of like women's roles and is there a place for the divine feminine? And of course there should be a place for the divine feminine in our tradition. And it, it shapes as to like per, perhaps even how Mary thought about it. Like you can take a very patriarchal view of it and say, well, a man, uh, you know, a male being was was doing this but then you can also say well look there's there's just a lot of richness and complexity that i don't want to completely untangle here but i think there's there's something to that and i want to point out that um that uh and you get you get to see the same spirit here in the magnificat of a a woman who is taking command of her narrative at least uh at least in in whatever whatever way she can, mm-hmm. and her attitude towards it is one of like I'm going to celebrate this by talking about the overthrow of empire, <laughs> uh, about casting down those with privilege and exalting those who lack privilege, right? And this mm-hmm. reminds leads into like what kind of lullabies did Jesus hear growing up? Like, is this, this is the, the woman who <laughs> raised him. And like, think right. about how he overturned the te- the tables in the temple. Think about how he, mm-hmm. he did his life. And this all begins right here at the manger. Uh, and I'm just thinking to myself, wow, isn't that beautiful? And it Quite. reminds me of something in Charles Wesley's hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. There's a line that says, mild he lays his glory by. And of course, this 
resonates with what we have in Philippians 2, which I've quoted many times here about how Christ had equality with God from the very beginning. In the, in the beginning, he uh, was the Word, and the Word was God, right? But then in, mm-hmm. in Philippians 2, he did not consider that equality as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking upon himself the form of a slave. Here you have him identifying with enslaved people, by the way. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah, he ends up divesting himself of all the privilege there is, equality with God, in order to serve those who need it and mm-hmm. in order to serve those who do not have Privilege, And this is the Christ-like model, and I don't know why we don't make a bigger deal about this than we do. Especially, our whole curriculum now is named, labeled, come follow me. All this come follow me, come follow me, come follow me. <laughs> like, we all hear this now, it's become a routine. But no yeah. one knows, I guarantee, like 99.9% of our listeners do not know where that comes from. Of course they know it comes from Jesus. But what did Jesus say right before he said, come follow me? No one's going to know that. Hmm. And well, here's I bet what we're going to read it now, huh? Yeah, we're going to read it now. Okay, it's, let's it go. appears one place in the King James Version with its synoptic parallels. I'm mm-hmm. going to read the Luke Version. This is the te- uh, the text about the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, "You know, I've kept all these things from my youth. I've keep I've been keeping all the commandments." And then Jesus says, "Whoops, you." You're, you need to do one more thing. And here's what it says. Here's Luke's version. Now, when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. That's where come follow me comes from. The Mm. thing that Jesus said right before come follow me is divest yourself of your privilege, your economic privilege. We don't like to talk about economic justice in the church, right? No. Jesus said, divest yourself of your privilege in order that you might empower others with that privilege. And then come follow me. And that's Mm -hmm. the rhythm that a lot of allies in the church don't want to do. They want to cling to their privilege. They don't want to take any risk or sacrifice. They don't want to ruffle the boat. I just mixed my metaphors here. (laughs) I know you can tell what what happens when I when I don't really prepare. (laughs) But Jesus literally says, "You can't do come follow me." unless you do the thing right before, which is divest yourself of privilege and follow the Mm Christ-like model from the manger, from the wood of the manger to the wood of the cross, we have Jesus divesting himself of privilege and inviting us to do the same, and we're not doing it enough, right? I think, um, look at how white folks, even after 1978, white folks haven't haven't done a good job of sharing leadership. Men in the church have not done a good job of sharing leadership with women. Mm-hmm. Um, and cl- we don't even have any, I don't even think we have any LGBTQ leaders in the church, anyone with authority or anyone with voice or anyone with standing, right, mm-hmm. in any real decision-making capacity. Like straight people are claiming um, the privilege of, of leading the church. I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. when that happens, you're going to, 
yeah, what what comes out of that? But anyway, my um, I'm just now rambling, but I, I no, can't make this point strongly enough that mild he lays his glory by. This is an example to all of us. And and we we can't look at the uh, we can't look at the manger any differently. Uh, I mean, we can't. We will never look at the manger the same if we understand exactly what Jesus was doing. And I just want to close what I'm saying for now with notice. I said for now because I'm always going to have more with <laughs> this observation that Jesus, um, at least according to Matthew and Mark, was a uh, son of a carpenter or a carpenter and mm-hmm. he perhaps would worked with with wood and by the way the word in greek is tectone which means a craftsman and it could be a craftsman in stone a craftsman in metal or a craftsman in uh, wood not in clay because there's a different word for that mm-hmm. but he so he could have been a metal worker or a stone worker um there's not a lot of wood like they didn't build houses out of wood in in Galilee because there's not a lot of wood. But they had wood for other right. things. Right. But I'm wondering if he made a yoke ever out of wood in his father's workshop. Mm. And then when he goes to say my yoke is easy and my burden is light at the end of Matthew 18, like he probably literally made some yokes before. Mm-hmm. And put his hands physically on the wood and that's ex- Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he didn't do, and he's not a- asking us to do anything that in the end is really hard. Yes, you might have to sacrifice, but in the end, you actually save yourself all this effort by doing the right thing. It's right. easy to succumb to temptation and want to collaborate with evil and collaborate with injustice, mm-hmm. and it gives you a little time. But it's way too costly. It's actually easier right. to just do the right thing. Stand with those who are uh, marginalized or persecuted mm-hmm. and divest yourself of that privilege. And and um, yeah, I'm going to stop right there. Okay. Okay. I wanted to uh, lift up what you said about Christ's example, like uh, particularly how you said that he doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't done or wasn't willing to do. And where this uh, divestment of privilege is concerned, this you know reminds me of a scripture in Corinthians. I think we spoke about during the during the New Testament unit. Um, he says something along the lines of, "By the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. though he was rich, and this is you know the whole equality with God that you were talking about, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his mm-hmm. poverty might that ye through his poverty might be rich." So like. At the end of the day, this is all to the end of uh, bringing us where Jesus is. And uh, that is why, I mean, that's one of the reasons, in my opinion, why ultimately following him is less costly, Mm -hmm. because this is indeed the path to becoming what he is. And whatever we have sacrificed, you know, we are, I mean, as that other scripture says, who shall, whosoever shall forsake lands or uh, family or whatever else mm-hmm. for my sake, he shall receive a hundredfold in the kingdom of God. Like those are the words of Christ. And uh, I do believe he fully intends to honor those words. In fact, I mean, all of us will profess that we do as, you know, proclaim Christians ourselves. But I just really like that uh, you brought that up, how, you know, to follow Jesus is to also follow that path of divesting privilege. And also just a beautiful observation you made, by the way, as well, about where the come follow me scripture actually is. 
and uh, what it means, what precedes it, and what the rest of the story is. Because all that, you know, that that matters. That context really mm-hmm. matters mm-hmm. for uh, it does. And I I guarantee you that I imagine ninety nine percent of people who talk about the come follow me this and that and this and that no one stops to think, well, what did Jesus say right before that? And why are we ignoring that? It's because I don't think that we're ready to to do the hard work of, of divesting ourselves of privilege. And it's difficult, yeah. Um and I love how you brought that brought out what Paul said. Um and for those that are listening, it's uh in Second Corinthians eight and nine about I can't he, stand that you just know where that is. He <laughs> He became uh, poor so that we might become rich through his poverty. And so this is just beautiful, poetic, um, not reverse. I don't know. It's just a really just, it's just so beautiful how this turns out. And it what's is poetic. Not, what's not beautiful is straight leaders in the church are asking us queer people to do something they would never do. Jesus mm-hmm. asks us, never asked us to do something he didn't do, right? He did it. He did it way bigger and more than we ever did. But straight leaders in the church are are trying to look me in the eye and ask me to live a life that they would never live and they don't live, right? They right. are happily um, uh, uh, happily existing in the families of their choice. Like what is uh, authentic for them? They have... Uh, spouses and children and and they they would never give that up mm-hmm. i think it's even i could understand like a catholic priest who is celibate he's saying you know what? i'm not asking you to do anything i'm not doing right i could right. kind of respect that a little bit more than what's going on here where we've got married leaders in the church who basically will say well i've i've got my my uh, desires all set and like i don't care about you at all Right, I don't even care about you enough to ask for revelation or to say, "Hey, wait a minute, wait, maybe we got something wrong here. Maybe we don't have everything." There's just mm-hmm. this smugness and this uh, overconfidence that comes with privilege. Like, up, oh, I, I got, I got mine. I don't, I don't care about you, mm-hmm. and they don't even stop to ask. And so, um, I just, I just wish they would be a little bit more like Christ. First of all, in divesting of privilege for the sake of others, but second of all, in uh, noting the hypocrisy of asking us to do something they would never do. I guarantee you, like if somehow a um, a policy came out from Salt Lake that said straight people couldn't get married, that policy would be fixed within 24 hours. Everyone would Mm -hmm. be mad. But why aren't people mad about what's happening to queer people? It's the same thing. It's mm-hmm. just that we've done it so long that it seems normal. Like the oppression of my people seems normal, and that is satanic. I better stop talking. But <laughs> er. anyway, so that let's look at Christmas time. So, yeah, I mean, Yay, this is Christmas. relevant, Derek. This is relevant. Christmas this time is very relevant because uh, the focus is on Christ. And uh, if I can just share a little bit about what has been on my mind. Like I said at the beginning, I don't have a lot new to say this year for Christmas that we haven't already said on the show. And I don't, I would prefer not to pre- repeat myself when folks can mm. just go back to the. Well, previous. you could talk about Kwanzaa. Uh, I could talk about Kwanzaa. Um, I haven't really theologized it yet, and I want, and I would really like to. It's not 
you know, it's not a religious holiday, but a cultural one created to give black folks an alternative holiday celebration that doesn't center the religion of a society that doesn't fully embrace them. There's a theology there for sure, because it's an effort to find purpose, meaning, identity, and direction for a group of people whose identities were denigrated and purposes taken. It's an effort to create space to celebrate people who aren't but should be celebrated during the most wonderful time of the year. But uh, I'm not really ready to talk about all of that today. And I've got something else on my mind this week, actually. So for the sake of time, I'm just going to focus on that. Um, So like as disciples of Christ during the Christmas season, we should probably be hyper aware, hyper focused rather on understanding the Savior and his teachings. And I haven't stopped thinking about this in light of our conversation on the family proclamation uh, last week or the week before. And I also haven't stopped thinking of it in the context of Elder Holland's words back in August. I'm, I'm recalling our conversation on that line from the family proclamation that says happiness and family life is most likely to be achieved when founded on the teachings of Jesus Christ. And I was thinking about what an inspired sentence that is, because it forces us to intimately acquaint ourselves with the teachings of Christ in order to properly implement them. I'm also recalling Elder Holland's insinuation that anti-queer sentiment comes from Christ and how there's no record of anti-queer sentiment coming from the Savior at all. I'm thinking of how the Christ I worship, the Christ born in, who lived in and who ministered on the margins, the Christ without a traditional family, that Christ doesn't otherize people because of their immutable identities. I, I feel like how we treat queer folk and the fact that you're exactly right about people's inability to name the context of the come follow me verse. I feel like those things demonstrate a certain distance from Christ. And it seems the uh, Christmas season is a great time for the disciples of Christ to refocus on Christ. And we can do that by refocusing on where Christ lived and ministered, which is you know, in the margins. Honestly, my thoughts on Christmas feel like a distillation of what this podcast exists for anyway, hence my feeling that I don't really have anything new to say. Even this notion that a holiday season with Christ's name in it should be more focused on Christ and therefore more more focused on recognizing the humanity and others, especially those on the margins, like that doesn't, that that can't be a new idea. But uh, like I said, the family proclamation lesson at this season is making me think about what it means to follow the Christ we worship and the irony of dehumanizing others in the name of Christ during the season of Christ when, uh, you know, the Christ we worship does nothing of the sort. So that that's what that's what yeah. my mind is on and, this holiday and I gotta season. And now, now, now I got to say more about the proclamation on the family. And I yes, think <laughs> that... Um, Last week, we talked about the ideal cultural Mormon family um, and the proclamation, and we talked about the ideal Nazi uh, concept of the family. Right. But let's let's hold up Jesus's earthly family here. Uh, it's Christmas. Let's talk about the birth of Christ. First of all, I just want to name, in the, in the name of the sacred Lord Jesus Christ, right, Jesus was not born of heterosexuality. Let me say it again. Jesus was not born of heterosexual sex, 
Like, there's people in this church that literally worship heterosexuality. They worship a heterosexual couple. They worship heterosexual sex. They consider heterosexual sex to be the origin and the generating force that makes the whole world run, right? Like, no, it's not. Um, Adam and Eve were not born of of heterosexual sex. Uh, And Jesus, born of a virgin, was also not born of heterosexual sex. And, like, how can you... Label that as the ideal when it's actually transgressive sexuality that brings the Messiah. Mm. And mm. Uh, anyway, so here we have um, a uh, an infant. Chris, let's go back to Christmas, right? We've got what a Christmas story. First of all, we've got a um, a baby whose father is not his father, right? Joseph is his his. Uh, foster father i guess or stepfather mm-hmm. i don't know how you would count it adopted father maybe whatever it is but anyway it's not his biological father he's raised by someone that's not his biological father um mm-hmm. he doesn't really fit the 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 the, procla- the the cultural mormon uh view of the family let's talk about some very interesting details in luke chapter 2 about the family so this is the uh this is the last story that we have while joseph uh, of Joseph, like Joseph does not appear after this story. This is the story of mm-hmm. going to Passover in Jerusalem. They travel to, uh, by they I mean the Holy Family travels to Jerusalem, and they leave Jesus behind. And then they come back and look for him. Now let's talk about something that people don't understand or don't or don't notice. It's how did they culturally construct family? Their definition of family was extended family. Their definition of family was so focused on the extended family and not focused on the nuclear family at all that they didn't even realize they had Jesus. Hmm. Imagine how many nuclear Mormon families would go to Disneyland and not know where their kids are, right? And mm-hmm. and like not realize for three you know for a whole day like oops we we you know that tells you how they constructed family it was large it was big it had grandparents and cousins and and aunts and uncles and large groupings of an entire village and so that's why they lost Jesus is because their view of family was so different than ours hmm. they didn't even notice that Jesus wasn't there right and. Um, Jesus's family, the biblical family, is nothing like the Nazi family, um, and it's nothing like the Mormon cultural family. Like, I can't even think of many really nuclear families in the Bible that are held up as a mommy and a daddy and then 2.5 kids and a dog and a picket fence. We don't have that kind of family in Scripture, um, especially <laughs> no, a single-family dwelling place like the, the Nazi ideal. Anyway, let's get back to— um, yeah, the Nazis hated, hated, uh, hated the the biblical Christ's teachings on family. Um, they hated, uh, you know, one of the parallels I didn't mention was, of course, the um, conversion therapy. You know, the Nazis tried conversion therapy on us uh, queer folks, and the Mormons, at least uh, in the nineteen seventies, BYU actually did studies on us. And uh, shocked us with electricity to turn us straight, and it didn't work. It wouldn't work on me. Um, I, it clearly would not work. But they <laughs> literally shocked us 
to try to make us straight by pairing the uh, we talked about Pavlov and conditioning last time, pairing uh, electric shocks with with uh, um, uh, gay sources, right? And then um, and then trying to, to to map that association and and turn people straight. I'm like that is awful. That is not what is that really what this church stands for? Like that's. That's that's not right. Anyway, but but I just know where Jesus is in all that. All that He's right here with me, right? Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, that's the the message of the incarnation. So yeah, I wish everyone a blessed Christmas. I should I could talk. Oh, poor James! <laughs> like I could literally talk about these things for hours and hours and hours, and there's always something I, know. I could come up with. So, I mean, but, this is the other we. This is the other reason we're friends because, like, I know there would never be a dull conversation. Trying to talk to me sometimes is like pulling teeth, but like oh. Derek can keep it going for hours. And, you know, that's one reason why I like hanging around him so much. He right. never oh. is at a dearth of, you know, unimportant or uninteresting things to talk about. Right. Like, I'm always on, apparently. <laughs> you are never going to let that go. <laughs> well, anyway, so we can save the rest of this, this for next Christmas. So I wish <laughs> everyone right. a blessed Christmas. Um and think about family this year. People talk about Christmas as a time for family. Well, what does that family look like? And how are you reimagining family this year, Christmas? I don't think so, my friend. Um, that is a wonderful note to end on. I love everything you shared. And I just want to add another witness to it because those words are important. They are necessary. And uh, I think that'll help people really orient themselves to what matters this Christmas and uh, why exactly Jesus is the reason for the season. Hopefully in that spirit, um, you know, we can both become the individuals that we're supposed to be in Christ and we can also become the church that we're supposed to be in Christ. So yeah, man, amen to everything you said. Thank you for sharing everything you said. Awesome. Thank you for sharing everything you said.